Actually, uh, first of all, open your Bible to Numbers chapter 21, which is the background for our text this morning. And we'll read our text in John in just a moment. But um, for right now, Numbers chapter 21. There's an outline in your bulletin. There are printed messages at both exits. You can get the full text of the message. And uh, those are online. And the last 21 years worth are online. And also the audio messages are on the church website as well. In Numbers 21, starting in verse 4, the children of Israel are in the wilderness, and then they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient because of the journey. The people spoke against God and Moses, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. So the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned because we've spoken against the Lord and you. Intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten when he looks at it, he will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a standard, and it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. If I were to uh, compare the prophet Muhammad to a snake, I'm sure that Muslims who heard of it would be out to kill me for blasphemy because it would be an insult to their revered prophet. And of course, the same would be true if I compared any religious leader And said he's like a snake. And so when I come to say that Jesus is like a snake, it sounds kind of like blasphemy, except for the fact that Jesus himself made that comparison. At the end of Jesus' interview with Nicodemus, and probably that interview, um, or Jesus' words, we're not sure, probably end at verse 15, And then verse 16 and following are John's uh, comment. But at the end here, Jesus answers Nicodemus' question. Back up in verse 9, Nicodemus said, Well, how can these things be? Or some translated, how can these things happen? Uh, The new birth is what he's asking about. And uh, he, he didn't understand how a person could gain entrance into God's eternal kingdom. And so... Jesus here tells Nicodemus in our text for this morning, verses 14 and 15, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in Him, or believes, I should say, will in Him have eternal life. 
What Jesus is saying here is the Spirit of God cannot just brush away the sin problem when He grants the new birth. For sin to be dealt with, God's justice must be satisfied, and the Son of Man had to be lifted up on the cross to satisfy God's wrath on behalf of sinners so that they might believe in Him and have eternal life. Now, the background we read in Numbers chapter 21, I didn't read the background of the background, which was that Edom, a country to the southeast of Israel, southeast of the Dead Sea, Edom had denied Israel permission to cross its land to get to the promised land. Moses had said, we won't take any of your food or water without paying for it. We just want to walk across. The king of Edom said, no way. And God told Moses, you can't attack Edom. And so Moses turns the people southeast. The promised land was northwest. And remember, they had been out in the wilderness now almost 40 years. And instead of making progress toward the promised land, now they're going in the opposite direction. And they're going through this barren wilderness. Picture the worst of the worst between here and California out there in the, in the Barstow Desert. But no roads, no cell phones, no, no water, no nothing out there. And they're heading out there now. And they get impatient and begin to grumble. They had just also, we re, uh, would have read if I'd had the time there in the first part of Numbers 21, they had just experienced a victory over some Canaanites. And so they probably thought, well, let's walk through Edom, and if those turkeys attack us, we'll just kill them. But God had said, no, don't do that. And so in obedience to God, Moses turns them away from the promised land. They get impatient and grumble and say to uh, Moses, verse 5 of Numbers 21, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in this wilderness? Whoops, <laughs> little one fell there. <laughs> There's a story in the Bible about somebody falling asleep during a sermon and <laughs> falling out of the window, and uh, he was a better preacher than I am, so anyway, I trust he's okay. Um, but anyway, they, they're complaining, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. The last is a reference to the manna. Every day, the same diet. They're getting tired of it. And so, because they grumble and because they despise God's gracious provision for them all of these years in the wilderness, God, in judgment, sends these fiery serpents among the people and many die. I understand the fiery to refer to how the bite felt. When you got bit with it, it felt like fire and then you died. So it wasn't a pleasant experience, to say the least. Uh, well, this time the people acknowledge their sin to Moses and they ask him to pray for a remedy. After all, people are dying. And uh, God tells Moses to make this bronze serpent, put it up on a pole, and he promises that everyone in Israel who has been bitten by these serpents, if they look to this bronze snake, and as you probably know, that's where you get the symbol you see in a doctor's office of the snake on the pole. 
if they look to this snake on the pole, then they will be healed and live. Now, any way you cut it, you have to admit that is a really strange story. Uh, it is strange on a number of counts. I mean, one of the Ten Commandments was, you shall not make any graven image. And here God tells Moses, make a graven image, an image of a snake. Uh, Didn't Moses remember Aaron and the golden calf incident? And a snake, I mean, the people knew the story about the snake in the garden. That was the beginning of all of our woes and troubles on this planet. When the serpent deceived Eve and she fell into sin. And now God commands Moses to make a snake and commands that everyone should look at this snake in order to live. I mean, had Moses lost it, you know, you must, some of Israel must have just thought, I think the old man may be in his final years. He's got to humor him. He's lost it, though. He doesn't know what he's doing. And of all the dumb ideas I've ever heard of, this one really takes the cake. Uh, But here in our text, Jesus picks up on that strange story, which would have been very familiar to Nicodemus, who probably had memorized the Pentateuch. And Jesus uses it to say this, just as those who looked in faith to the serpent in the wilderness were healed, so those who look in faith to the lifted up Son of Man will have eternal life. Now, I want us to think this morning then about how Jesus is like a snake. Kind of a strange comparison, as I said, and one I would never make if it weren't in Scripture. And uh, we can learn five things about why we need the new birth and how Jesus provides it for us. The first lesson certainly is that because of sin, all people are under the curse of death. These people in the wilderness were dying because of their sin. And they didn't deserve to live. I mean, after all, they're grumbling. They had rebelled against God. God had been good to them. He had brought them out of Egypt in slavery. He had destroyed Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea, brought the people across. He had provided water out of the rock. He had given them manna every morning so that they were sustained in the wilderness. He had protected them from that burning desert sun with a cloud by day and then the pillar of fire by night. Uh, All of this goodness, and yet here they are grumbling uh, at God and at Moses about their circumstances and uh, what is going on. And so God sends these deadly snakes as a judgment. But... As you think about it, have you ever grumbled against God in spite of all of His goodness to you? Grumbled about your circumstances? You know, it could be something simple. I remember years ago, I was in Dallas, which is very hot, and my apartment did not have air conditioning, and Dallas is hot and humid, and my apartment didn't have a shower. And... uh, I was grumbling about having to take a bath. And this was when Vietnam was going on, and God just convicted me on the spot and said, you know, you could be over there in Vietnam getting shot at by the Viet Cong and having all manner of heat and humidity and a few other stressful things going on in your life. 
And I just went, oh God, what a grumbler I am. But maybe there's circumstances in your life right now that you just are prone to grumble about. Maybe it's a financial problem. It's easy to grumble. Maybe it's a health problem. Or maybe you're lonely and you're praying for a mate and there's no prospect on the horizon. Or maybe you have a mate and you wish you didn't because (laughs) things are difficult at home. Or maybe it's your parents you grumble about. Or your children that you grumble about. I mean... The list can go on and on and on, can't it? You know, from minor things like this traffic is driving me crazy to, you know, big things. But we are prone to grumble. Now, it's proper to take these things to the Lord in prayer. And there is a proper sense, and you have to be very careful here, there is a proper sense in which it's okay even to complain to the Lord in prayer. I think the psalmist does that. But the proper sense is you do it submissively as a submissive child to your father. You don't challenge him. You don't rebel against him. You thank him, in fact, for the problem that has driven you to him. You see, it's different. It's like when my kids were little. If they came to me, you know, defiant, even if I was in the wrong I didn't tolerate defiance. I had to deal with their attitude and say, wait a minute, it's the wrong way to talk to me about a problem. Now, if they came to me submissive and said, Dad, you you promised this and you haven't done it, okay, we can talk about that. And that's the way I think we should come to our Heavenly Father, not in rebellion, not shaking our fist at Him, challenging His goodness and and questioning that what he's doing to us, but we can come as uh, children and bring our needs before him. But you know, whether we it's grumbling, and I think that probably convicts every person here, or having other gods before the living and true God, or not loving our neighbor as ourselves, or pride, or lust, or greed, or selfishness, the list goes on. We all have sinned against the holy God. And uh, Paul says in Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, not even one. So in case you thought, I'm the exception, Paul nails you and says, no, you're not. We've all sinned. And as he goes on to say, the wages of sin is death. So we're like these Israelites in the wilderness. We're under the curse. And uh, the story of Nicodemus illustrates even good, religiously zealous people like Nicodemus are under the curse of sin and death. Nicodemus, you see, was a Pharisee, and he thought that his Pharisaic righteousness would put him in good stead with God. I mean, he had done all of these things, and, and he comes to see this young rabbi Jesus and talk theology with him, and... Wham! Jesus hits him broadside in verse 3 with that statement, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. All of your religious stuff, Nicodemus, doesn't get you in right standing with God. All of your good works are useless. And... uh, You know, Nicodemus needed the Savior because he was a sinner. And the point of the story here is 
All of your good deeds are of no cure against the snake bite of sin because we've all sinned. Now, the story brings out a great contrast between religion and biblical Christianity. See, religion has to do one of two things. Either it ignores or plays down human sin and says, it's not that bad. And in doing that, it has to bring down the holiness of God and say, and God's a good old guy, you know? I mean, he he puts up with a little sin. Neither of those are true, but that's how it deals with it. Or religion has to come in and say, you can pay for your sin. Do penance. Go to church. You know, uh, uh, give money. Uh, work for the poor. Do all of these things and you'll get in. And again, that pulls down the holiness of God. You see, biblical Christianity recognizes God cannot tolerate any sin in heaven. God is perfect. And there will be no sin in heaven. And God has to deal with our sin. We can't pay for it because the Bible says all of our good deeds are like filthy rags in God's sight. And, and we can't erase the penalty of our sin with our good deeds any more than a murderer could go to court and say, but, you know, I've, I'm in the Kiwanis Club. I'm a good guy. Yeah, well, that doesn't balance out what you've done. That sin, that crime has to be paid for. And so that leads to the second lesson of our text. That God graciously provided the remedy for the curse. See, these snake-bitten people could not do anything. There was no remedy. They got bit, they suffered, they died. They were dropping like flies. And so God had to provide the remedy that they needed or they would all die. And so when they confess their sin to Moses and they ask him to intercede, God gives them this strange remedy of put this bronze snake up on a pole and whoever looks at it will live. And... Even so, we're all under the condemnation of sin and death because of our sin. And there's no human remedy that can help. And God graciously provided the remedy we need, the way of salvation. And He sent His own Son, like that uh, snake, to be the one lifted up on the cross that whoever looks in faith to Him will live. Now, several things to note about this remedy of the snake and how it compares to the cross of Jesus Christ. First of all, note that it's a supernatural remedy. In other words, it came from God. Moses didn't say, scratch his head when the people came to him and said, you know, give me a few days to think about this one. This is a tough problem. And he gathers together the elders of uh, Israel for a brainstorming session And finally, he comes back and he says, I've got it, people. I've got the solution. I made this bronze snake, see? And if you just come and look at it, I'm convinced that's going to heal you. That would have been a human solution that people would have said, "Uh, excuse me, Moses, but you've lost it. That's just plain nuts. You know, the cross comes across that way to people. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. And the point is, no man would have come up with the cross as the remedy for human sin. 
That's just not something that religious philosophers sat around and said, I've got it. Here's the solution. No, it was God's solution. In fact, God ordained it before the foundation of the world for us. The snake on the pole was also a sufficient remedy. It was supernatural and it was sufficient. In other words, Moses didn't say, okay, everybody, look at the snake, go home and take two aspirin and you'll feel better tomorrow morning. Uh, he, He didn't say, you know, look at the snake and I've got this special snake oil and if you'll rub some of it on you, on your wound, you'll be better and we got a special discount for you just today if you buy We'll give it to you at a bargain. That isn't what he said. See, there was nothing you could add. He didn't say, bring your offerings to the snake, especially monetary, and we'll take care of you. No, there was a simple remedy. Just look to the snake, and it was sufficient to heal you. And in the same way, the cross of Jesus Christ is sufficient for salvation. You don't have to add anything to it. Nothing. It's complete. You don't have to give money to the church. You don't have to uh, do penance, you know, to pay for your sins. You don't have to join the church. You don't need to say, well, I promise to reform my life and I'll do good deeds all the days of my life. And you don't have to do it any. As we sang last week, Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all on the cross. And there's nothing to do except look to Jesus in faith, just as those people look to that bronze serpent, you look to Christ and you'll live. The snake was supernatural. It was sufficient, but it was also a sure remedy. In other words, it was 100% effective. Everyone who came and looked to it was cured, no exceptions. It was remarkable. And in the same way, Jesus saves every sinner who looks to Him in faith. Every sinner. He says in verse 15, notice the word whoever, that whoever believes will in Him have eternal life. What a wonderful promise that is. Whoever believes in Christ will be saved from sin and guilt. And it means there are no cases too difficult for God, you know? so You might think, well, man... You don't know my past. I'm a notorious sinner. So was Paul. He killed Christians. Uh, So was Matthew. He ripped people off for a prophet. He was a tax collector. So was the woman at the well that we'll meet in John chapter 4. She had had five husbands and was living with a man now who was not her husband. So was the garrison demoniac, crazed and living out in the tombs. And... and, uh, So was the thief on the cross. And yet God saved them all. And the Bible is filled with terrible sinners who recognized, I've been bitten by this terrible serpent of sin and I am going to die. And Jesus says, look unto me. And it's 100% effective. In John 6.37, Jesus says this, The one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. And that applies to anyone. Whoever, anyone who comes to him, he will welcome them. 
Also, this snake was a very simple remedy. It was, I said it was sufficient, so you didn't need to add anything to it. And its sufficiency made it simple. There was nothing you had to do. You didn't have to crawl on your hands and knees over broken glass to get to the serpent in order to make it effect, effective in your case. You didn't have to memorize this difficult mantra, make sure you don't mess up now, say it perfectly, and, and you'll be cured. No, none of that stuff at all. Uh, you didn't have to take special classes on how to fight snakes, you know, and get the technique down, and then you would be cured. There was none of that. All you had to do was look to this snake and live. And all you need to do is believe in Jesus as the one who died on the cross for your sin, and you will have in Him eternal life. That's the promise of verse 15. And then lastly, and maybe this is the hardest part of this remedy, it was a self-effacing remedy. See, you couldn't take any credit for your cure. I mean, what credit is there in looking? <laughs> you know? You couldn't say, oh man, I fasted for days before I went and looked. And that's what did it. You know? Or, I just did good works and I, I helped out the poor and I went and looked and it was that that did it. No. No. It was just looking. But to look, you had to say, you know what? I'm lost and I'm dying and there's nothing I can do and I'm doomed. But He promised... And I looked, and that was it. And all the glory goes to Him that way, because it's His remedy. And so it's humbling to your pride. Ichabod Spencer, not too many kids named Ichabod these days. Ichabod Spencer was a 19th century pastor in Brooklyn, New York. And a gifted evangelist. I just ordered for the book table some more copies of his uh, book, A Pastor's Sketches, and either he took copious notes right afterward or he had a, an amazing memory, but in that book he recounts dozens of encounters he had sharing the gospel with people and how they came to faith through his witness. And if you're interested in sharing your faith, when that book gets on the book table in a couple of weeks, pick up a copy. But in it he tells about a situation where after he had preached, he had 70 people lined up waiting to talk to him about their soul. And he was going down the line trying to be uh, sensitive to each person. And he came to a young man and asked him, what is the state of your feelings on the subject of your salvation? And the young man replied, I feel that I have a very wicked heart. Well, Spencer perceived that the young man was kind of playing games and that he hadn't really gone very deep in his conviction of sin. And so Spencer replied, it's a great deal more wicked than you think. And he walked on to the next person and left him with that comment. Well, a few days later, this young man came to Spencer's office and told him with joy that he had found peace with God through faith in Christ. But he said, but I need to tell you, he said, I was very angry with you when you made that comment to me the other night. Um, he, he said he felt that Spencer had been cruel. He said, I felt like you didn't even care about my soul, whether I got eternal life or not. And uh, he said, but as I left, I couldn't get that comment out of my mind. 
And the Spirit of God began to get him to look deeper and deeper within, and he recognized that even though he thought his conviction of sin was uh, sufficient, he realized it was really very superficial at first. And he told Spencer that he had driven the arrow deeper, so to speak, into his conscience, and that drove him to the foot of the cross where he found uh, mercy. But what I'm saying is this. The cross is a very humbling remedy for your sin. Because you have to say, I am a sinner and there isn't a single thing I can do about it myself to remedy the problem. See, I'm, I'm lost. I'm going to die from this snake bite unless God does something. And that's a pretty big stumbling block for a good person like Nicodemus. See, Nicodemus had to say, you mean I'm like these prostitutes and publicans, the tax collectors that are coming to Jesus? Yeah. Yeah, you are. Whoa, that's a hard pill for a good person to swallow. And it's a hard pill for you to swallow if you grew up in a Christian home as I did. You know, never been drunk, never done drugs. Hey, I'm a good person. No, I'm not. No, you've got to come to realize my heart is capable of the worst sins, just like everyone else. I just happen to be protected a little more than some other people, so maybe I didn't act out on it. But here's the good news. When God humbles you because of your sin, and you come to the cross, you realize, as I said, it is an all-sufficient remedy. Look unto Christ, and you will be saved. Salvation, as Paul says, is by grace. That means undeserved favor. Through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one can boast. So all you've got to do is receive the gift. So because of sin, all are under this curse of death. That's the first lesson. Secondly, Thankfully, God graciously provided the remedy for our curse. But the third thing to note here is the remedy must be lifted up. Verse 14, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now, what does John mean? Well, there's a clue in that he uses that phrase, lifted up of Jesus, three other times. And every time it refers to the cross. In John 8:28, Jesus said, "When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am, or that I am He, the He is added, but He just said, "You'll know that I am, and I do nothing of my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me." And then John 12:32, Jesus again said, "And I, if I am lifted up from the earth." will draw all men to Myself. And the Jews respond in verse 34, the crowd answered Him, We have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Did you notice that the word must occurs in two of those verses in our text and in that last reference? And it refers to the fact that the cross was an absolute necessity. 
to atone for our sins. Jesus, remember, in the garden said, Father, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. There was no other way. In order to atone for our sins, the perfect sinless Son of Man, who is God, who is man, in one person forever, had to go to the cross and bear our sin, and He is the only bridge between the Holy God and us as sinners. He had to be lifted up as our substitute. But I don't think that's all that John means by lifted up. John is very fond in his gospel of double meanings, of words that mean something on one level, but you go a little deeper and it means something else. And the word lifted up can also mean to exalt or to lift up in majesty. And in fact, Peter and Paul both used the word in that way. And so did Isaiah. In chapter 52, verse 13, right before you come to that great 53rd chapter where he mentions Messiah as the Lamb who was led to slaughter for our sin, uh, he says that he will be exalted. And so... Just as that despised snake had to be lifted up there in the wilderness, so Jesus would be despised and lifted up on the cross in two senses. In the bad sense, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God, He made Him, Christ, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might be the righteousness of God in Him. And then in Galatians 3.13 it said that He was made a curse for us, but in the second sense, God didn't leave him on the cross. God raised him from the dead, exalted him on high. He is now at the right hand of the Father, coming again in power and glory. And so, yes, he was lifted up to die, but yes, he was lifted up from the grave and lifted up to heaven. And so, Jesus here, at the very outset of his ministry with Nicodemus, is prophesying of his death and resurrection. And he's answering Nicodemus's question, how can these things happen, verse 9, by saying the new birth happens when sinners look in faith to the crucified, resurrected, exalted on high Son of Man who died as a substitute for sinners. And even so, in verse 15 again, whoever believes will in Him have eternal life. And so that's how the new birth happens. And then the, the fourth lesson here is that the only thing that cursed people have to do to be healed is to look in faith to God's remedy. You know, you think about that story. God could have removed the deadly snakes, couldn't He? He could have made them all die on the spot, wither up, and that was the end of the snake problem. He didn't solve it that way. Rather, he provided this kind of strange remedy. Look to this lifted up snake and you'll live. Now, it seemed absurd. Um, And it didn't require anything except faith is implicit there. They had to believe the word of Moses, which was the word of God, that when you look, you'll live. And in our text again, verse 15, whoever believes will in him have eternal life. And I think that verse is showing the equivalent of looking to the snake in the wilderness is believing in the exalted Jesus. And as 
Verse, verse 15, believes is, doesn't have an object. Um, in him goes with eternal life, grammatically, in Greek. But in verse 16, John specifies our faith is to be in Jesus, the Son of God. A couple of months ago, you might remember, I used a, a story to um, illustrate a point. It was the conversion story of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great British uh, Baptist preacher. And uh, as a young boy, he stumbled into a Methodist chapel on a snowy January morning, and a lay preacher was there preaching on Isaiah 45:22, which in King James Version, which he had, reads, Look to me, look unto me, and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. And that lay preacher, in a very simple way, made the point, it doesn't take any effort to look. It doesn't take any special talent to look. It doesn't take much to look. All you've got to do is look. And young Spurgeon said, suddenly, the light went on, he looked at Jesus, and he was gloriously saved, and went on to be the greatest preacher of the 19th century. Now, we need to be clear, though, that when we're talking about looking to Jesus, we're not talking about using Jesus as a magic charm. You know, you rub him the right way and he'll get you what you want. That's really idolatry. See, in the, in the wilderness, the Israelites weren't looking to the snake going, wow, that's a lucky snake. What they were believing was the promise of God through Moses that this was the solution. And in coming to Christ, what you're believing is God promised that Jesus is my substitute for my sin on the cross. I take that promise and I believe Him for that. I trust my eternal destiny, just as they were trusting their cure. We trust our eternal destiny to the fact that the promise of God, that whoever believes will in Jesus have eternal life, and that is what we're believing. It's not a magic rub him the right way thing and you get what you want kind of deal. That's idolatry. Now, the reason I bring that up is this. About 700 years after this incident in the wilderness, Israel had fallen into idolatry with the snake. They, they were coming, that, that thing still existed, and they were coming to it and worshiping the lifted up snake. And King Hezekiah, and it took some boldness on his part, destroyed that thing. Can you imagine? The people were saying, wait, this came from Moses. His hand made that. I mean, we got 700 years of religious tradition here, Hezekiah. And he said, I don't care. You're making an idol out of that snake. And he ground it up and destroyed it. Now, I know I'm going to offend some folks here, but I need to speak the truth. If you're looking to Jesus on a crucifix, that's the same thing as looking to that snake as your salvation. It's idolatry. See, that is not what it means to believe in Jesus. That's idolatry. Well, but our tradition. Yep, 700 years worth there. Oh, but, but. No. Jesus isn't on the cross. Jesus is risen. And we don't look to a cross like that one either to worship it. 
We look to Jesus, the risen Lord Jesus, and to the promise of God, and we rest our hope there. And if you're into idolatry, I just would say to you, destroy the thing. Get rid of it. That is not the way to Christ. We believe in the word of the living God and of the risen living Christ, and we are saved. And then the final thing, just briefly, the result of looking was life. Whoever looked in faith to the snake lived. As I said, it was 100%. And whoever believes in Jesus, promise of God is, whoever believes will in him have eternal life. This is the first, uh, I put in the notes, first of ten references, because one commentary said that. And then I decided last night to check it out, and I counted 17 references in John to eternal life. I don't know where that commentator was coming from, but um, it's a frequent theme in the Gospel of John. And uh, in chapter 1, verse 4, we saw that in him was life, and by just that phrase, life without eternal, John means eternal life. But eternal life is not just life forever. It is joyous, abundant life to the full without sin. Have you ever thought of how many of your problems come from sin, either yours or someone else's against you? In heaven there will be none of that. It will be wonderful. We will be there without any sorrow or pain or death or tears or sin. In the presence of God, the psalmist in Psalm 16:11 said, that we will enjoy pleasures forever at your right hand. That is eternal life. And in chapter 17, Jesus gives us the closest thing to a definition of eternal life when he says, verse 3, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. In... uh, His exposition of the Gospel of John, A.W. Pink, wrote this. Man became a lost sinner by a look. For the first thing recorded of Eve in connection with the fall of our first parents is that the woman saw that the tree was good for food, Genesis 3.6. In like manner, the lost sinner is saved by a look. The Christian life begins by looking. Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is none else. Isaiah 45, 22. The Christian life continues by looking. Let us run with patience the race which is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of faith. Hebrews 12, 2. And at the end of the Christian life, we're still to be looking for Christ. For our conversation, or citizenship, is in heaven. From whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 3.20 So Pink says, from the first to the last, the one thing required is looking at God's Son. So as I conclude, the question is, first of all, have you looked to the Lord Jesus on the cross to be your substitute for your sin? Is He your Savior because you've looked in faith to Him? And then the final question then, if you have, are you still looking unto Him as you run the race of faith? Father, we come before You and ask that You would help each person here to look to Christ 
if there are any who have never looked to Him as Savior and Lord, that they would see Him lifted up on the cross, risen now from the dead, exalted on high, the only one who can cure the snake bite of sin. I pray, Lord, that if any of your children are looking to other things for solutions to remedies in this world, that they would instead look to Jesus as their all in all in whatever trial they may be in. And that we would give all the praise and all the glory to you, the glorious Savior who became identified with us in our sin in order to rescue us from it. In Jesus' name, amen.